Last week we talked about uh, how God reveals himself and often takes a roundabout way to bring us to his destination or his point that he wants us to learn. And the history of the Jews, we see in our own lives, we can say it suggests strongly God uses a roundabout way to his destination because we have wayward hearts. We often go our own way. And though we go our own way, God is gracious to redirect us in time back to the way we should go, not just the way that looks good to us. Faith in God, it leads us to go God's way even when it doesn't look like the right way or the comfortable way or the easy way. Remember what happened when Lot and Abraham's flocks were too large for them to dwell together. And they, Abraham said, okay, have your choice. Where do you want to go? And it said, Lot lifted up his eyes to the well-watered plain near Sodom. So he sees it's well-watered. He has herds and flocks. Perfect fit, right? This is where his flocks are going to get uh, fed. And But that watered, that well-watered spot is a place of notorious wickedness. It would soon be destroyed and left desolate. So it looked good to him, but in the end, it only brought grief to his soul. So walking by sight, the Bible says, uh, the righteous soul of Lot was vexed. He was vexed while he was in Sodom, and he was vexed when he left, and he was alone in the cave. So in following Jesus, we need the guidance from the Holy Spirit, don't we? Because the way that always seems right to a man, or the way that looks good to us, is not always the right way. It's not always God's way. So we need him to help us. And in Psalm 32, verse 8, this is what God says. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. It's the idea that he's looking at us and he knows where we're supposed to go. So he's going to guide us. It says, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Those who trust the Lord receive the mercy of God. The the mercies of God will surround that person. They'll be enfolded in the mercies of God when you choose to trust him and go his way. Once we've been broken, see, that's something that an ox needs, a horse needs. They must be broken before they can be properly trained and respond to the commands of their owner. And in the same way, we need to be broken for our sin, realizing that we We have gone the wrong way, and we need the training of the Lord to go his way. Let's respond in that way. So let's pray as we open the word. Thank you, Father, that you are good to us. Your mercies are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. Thank you that those who trust the Lord, mercy will surround that person. And how how good it is, Lord, to know you, to know that you are a gracious God and compassionate. You know our frame, that we're dust. You know that our hearts are wayward and stubborn. And we go our own way, we walk by sight and not by faith. But thank you, Jesus, that you change us, that you make us new when we repent and trust in you. And we can go on knowing that you're with us, you're guiding us and protecting us and providing for all of our needs. And I pray, Lord, as we read your word, that we would respond not as a horse that needs a bit and a bridle and a tug on the reins, but just at your still small voice. We will respond with repentance, with contrite hearts, so that you will look upon us and we can find favor in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So the setting for our passage today, Stephen, he was a uh, minister in the early church. He'd been doing signs and wonders in Jesus' name. He was detained and brought before the Sanhedrin because he was speaking of Christ and uh, the religious leaders did not like that. So they accused him of blasphemy. And that was a very uh, dangerous accusation to be brought against you because the penalty was death. They said he's blasphemed against the temple. He's blasphemed against the law. And when he's given the chance to defend himself, instead he chooses to proclaim the goodness of God throughout the history of Israel. So he, he lays out this great history lesson of the Jewish nation. And one thread we see woven throughout his entire discourse is the Jews were God's people, yet they historically rejected the messengers that God sent to speak to them. This is something common throughout their whole history. For instance, Joseph, he was a man that God, through whom God would save his people and also Egypt from famine. But his brothers, the Bible says, rejected him. They hated him. They sold him into slavery. Okay, so Joseph was chosen by God, but his brothers hated him. You have Moses. He's a Hebrew, raised in Pharaoh's house, mighty in word and deed. And when he supposed the Hebrew slaves would realize that God had called them, him to deliver them, the Hebrews daubed him into the Egyptian king who now sought to kill him. So, so he had to run for his life. Interesting, isn't it? The people who claim loyalty to God, allegiance to God, they can reject the people that God sends to them. It's something historically throughout uh, the scripture. And let's not think that the Old Testament examples don't apply to us, because they certainly do. So we're in chapter 7 of Acts, starting in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He brought them out, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. The people that Stephen is speaking to, they greatly revered Moses. If Moses had been there, they likely would have worshipped him. I mean, they held him in the highest regard. He was among their greatest prophets. There was none they regarded more because he was the one who had heard from God. He's the one who went up on Sinai and brought down the Ten Commandments. He's the one that brought them out of bondage and led them to the edge of the promised land. And it says here that They, he brought them out, but they rejected him. So their fathers, way back in the day, they rejected Moses. They despised him. They questioned his authority and his credentials. Who made you our ruler? Who gave you the authority to, to take that position over us? He did many signs and wonders. We read that he did at least 10 supernatural plagues that showed all the idols of Egypt were powerless, right? The 10 plagues that he did. God did them through him, of course. and uh, the, But that's not even it. The manner of their departure from Egypt, how they plundered their enemies, that they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, that the physical presence of God went before them 24 hours a day, either in a cloud during the day or fire at night. God appeared to them all on Sinai, and Moses was the only one who walked up and spoke with God for 40 days, and didn't eat or drink anything. God sustained him. 
Then he's feed, God is feeding people with manna from heaven, water from the rock. Their clothes did not get old. Their sandals did not wear out. God caused the ground to open up and swallow alive Korah and those in his rebellion. When the people murmured against God and Moses, God sent serpents in among the people. When Moses made the brass serpent and people looked upon it, they were healed and saved. So there's all these miraculous things. Mara, the water was bitter. They couldn't drink it. He threw a tree in the water and the waters were cured and they were able to drink them and their livestock. Miriam, she was struck with leprosy. When Moses prayed, she was healed of her leprosy. Moses' face shone after meeting with God. And the people said, who made you a ruler over us? Pretty strange, right? We go, how could they do that? And the testimony of the hearts of the people in Canaan, when they went into Jericho, they said, all the nations that have heard about your God, our hearts have melted because we can't face him. He's so mighty and so awesome. Who can fight against him? And yet, at that same time, the people, they carried idols with them out of Egypt, carried them, lugged them around in the wilderness for 40 years, and then carried them over Jordan into the land of Canaan. And we say, how could they do that? But they did. They did it. They were rebellious and stiff-necked, and they held onto their idols in wood and stone when they have the great I Am, the Almighty God, whose people they were. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses, the one that the Sanhedrin claimed to honor, In Deuteronomy 18.15, he spoke of another prophet that God would raise up from his people who would be like unto him, except he would be the Messiah, the Savior. And he says, he's the one you should listen to. You know, hear the words of the law that I received, written by the fingers of God, but there's another prophet who's greater than I. You should listen to him. And we know that Jesus brought in the new covenant through his own blood. just to be sure they they were talking about the same Moses. He says, this is that Moses. He did all this, and yet he was rejected by the people. Stephen provided evidence in his address that these chief priests and rulers could not deny. He's quoting from the Torah. He's quoting from their scriptures. And he's saying, this has been meticulously copied for thousands of years. We have the evidence before us. You guys have memorized it. You know it's true. As true as we know God, it's true that our fathers rebelled in the wilderness. And that's why their carcasses fell there. And they rebelled against the one that God sent. The one that God spoke to. When they were in slavery, the Hebrews cried out to God for salvation. He heard them and he sent Moses and promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. It would be an abundant land, a land of sweetness and and uh, strength, great provision. And that sounds appealing, right? If you're in slavery and you're promised this great land, you're like, right on, bring it. I'm ready. Though God delivered them, 
it says in this passage, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Now, they couldn't go back to Egypt. Remember, the armies had chased them out. And Egypt, according to the Egyptians' testimony, Egypt was ruined. It was totally destroyed. There was really nothing to go back to. But in their hearts, that's where their affections were. Instead of putting their affections upon God, their hearts turned back to Egypt. They kept plodding through the wilderness, following the presence of God, but their hearts weren't in it. They were back there in Egypt. God appeared before them in Sinai. They trembled before his presence. They said, Moses, we don't dare speak to God. We'll die. You talk to God. So Moses did. And when Moses had been away for a matter of days, right? He was only up on the mount for 40 days. While he's there, the people see the presence of God on the mountain. They say, hey, Aaron, high priest, make us some idols to go before us. Make us gods. Because we don't know what's happened to this Moses. You hear the scorn in their tone. This Moses, we don't know what's become of him. So make us an image to be our God. You're like, come on! How could this be? How little they thought of God, how little they thought of his servant, that he could be replaced with a golden calf. right? A golden cow. Now that's their God. How fickle and foolish and how pliable the high priest was to acquiesce to them. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So during those 40 days, Moses met with God on the mount, and they made this calf. Aaron takes up a collection. He engraves this image. When God appears, they cower and complain. When they make their idol, what does it say? They rejoice, they worship, they're dancing. They're, they're just celebrating the works of their own hands. This rejection of God, this rejoicing in idolatry, would be a pattern repeated throughout the history of Israel all the way through something they carried in their hearts all the way, ad nauseum. In light of God's revelation, it doesn't make sense. We go, that's illogical. Why would they do that? But realize it doesn't have to be sensible or logical for us to choose idolatry. It never is. But the flesh delights in it. The flesh rejoices in it. Man's greatest affection is naturally for self. And people give their lives every day to what makes them happy or comfortable. So people turn from God. Verse 42, it says God turned. It's really significant. God's looking at his people. It says he turned and gave up his people to worship false gods. He said, did you only sacrifice to me in the wilderness? When you were trudging through, no, you sacrificed to your own gods, the ones that you made with your own hands. Moloch, Rimphan. If you're uncertain about this, there's a lot of biblical support. When Joshua, who was Moses' successor, actually brought the people into the land, they had defeated Jericho, Ai, many of the nations had fallen, the Og of Bashan, all these great kings were gone. At the very end of his life, Joshua said in chapter 24, verse 14, to the people, 
He says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So he's like, guys, it's time to get right with God. It's time to serve God. Quit following the idols that your fathers had, not just in the wilderness, but in Egypt. They've come all this way. It's a good question to consider. Do we worship the gods which our fathers served? If our, if our fathers served the one true God, are we serving that God? Or are there other gods? Sometimes it's easier for us to, to pick out a God that someone else may be worshiping. We don't, we're not so quite switched on to what our gods are, our idols. Sin, that's hereditary. But genetics cannot be blamed for our sinful choices, chains that Jesus Christ can shatter in an instant. So we've all inherited Adam's nature. You can't blame your dad because of your sin. We all have that sin nature from Adam, passed down. But what choice are we going to make? What choice are you going to make? Continue in that or say, you know what? I'm done with these idols. They have no place in my life anymore. And it's not just avoiding idolatry, but it's serving the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord when we hold on to idols or self. Now, when after Joshua said that to people who had idols in their tents, like physical, actual idols, they, they said, God forbid we should serve idols. So they pretty much denied the fact they had them. They talked a good name, but Joshua had them nailed in verse 19. He said, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. So he says, you can't serve God. Now, if someone said that to you, would you be offended? Like, what do you mean I can't serve God? Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? Of course I can serve God. But he said, and, and the reason he gives them, why? He says, you can't because he's a jealous God. He will not forgive your trespasses because they had not repented. Until you repent, there is no forgiveness. Until you put away the idol, you keep worshiping it, you can't be forgiven for that because you're still doing it. When there was repentance, they could obtain forgiveness. And then he concluded in verse 23. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Lean towards him. Desire him. Move towards him. Draw near to him. Now, in our flesh, we can't do that. We need a new heart. And that's why the law proved incapable of saving because the people need, they had a problem in their hearts, and that's where our problem is too. We need a new heart. We need God to show us what our idols are so we can put them away, so that we can serve him, and we can have forgiveness from him. There's this human proclivity to idolatry. It cannot be denied by the religious rulers, nor us. Now Stephen, when he was quoting, he quoted from Amos chapter 5, if you want to turn there. It's, uh, it's very similar. He changes the word Damascus to Babylon. So Amos chapter 5, it's a little one. It's going to be a tricky find for some of you in the minor prophets. So go to the big prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah. And then if you go to the New Testament, you've gone too far. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. So it's close to Jonah. 
So if you guys uh, memorized the books of the Bible, you used to do it to jump rope. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Maybe jump rope's not your thing, but it's a good thing to learn where the books of the Bible are. Amos 5.25 Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Idolatry, it's sinister because we carry it with us wherever we go. It's a problem in our heart. We can be blind to the idols we worship, but God, he discerns if we regard that as king, if there's something in our life that's beginning to encroach upon his rightful place of authority as our king, as our master. And we be, because every idol will demand a degree of control and influence over our lives. And idol, every idol will do that. It will begin to impact your life. You'll begin to plan around it. You have to make room for it. It's there. And instead of us seeking the Lord, we begin to modify life to accommodate something. Because the Jews carry their idols along with them, God said, I'm going to carry you away into captivity, into bondage in Babylon. That season in Babylon, could the religious leaders debate why that had happened? Or that it had happened at all? No, because it was written in their sacred texts. They knew why, because of the prophets that they had why they went into captivity, how long they were in captivity, and how God brought them out of captivity. How the temple that Solomon had built was raised. Who raised it and who rebuilt it? This was all in their history, so they couldn't say a word against it. We're getting a little taste of the wisdom that could not be resisted, of which Stephen spoke to them. They're like, oh, this guy, we really can't argue with him because he's telling us stuff that we already know, and he's putting it in such a way that's condemning us. The history of God's people, it's riddled with sinful affections, divided loyalty, hypocrisy, denial of the truth, rejection of God's messengers. This is God's people. So before we accuse or we look upon them with scorn, we need to admit that we have everything in common with them as sinners. As sinners, we are exactly the same. Our flesh is no better. Our resolve is no stronger. And unless we put away our idols and repent, we too will be in captive. We will be made captive, held in bondage as they were. Of course, we have the the benefit and the blessing to look toward the new covenant that God has made through Jesus. That if we repent, we will be forgiven and we can be born again and changed on the inside so that our inclinations now change because our heart is inclined towards the Lord, whereas before it was toward self. Back in Acts 7, 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. 
What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen had been accused of blaspheming the temple. Um, And Stephen affirmed that the pride and the affections the people had towards the temple was affections misplaced. That they were putting a higher degree of importance upon it than what God did. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? The Holy of Holies, that, that veil, it was ripped from top to bottom. It showed that the temple worship was now obsolete because Jesus has made a way for man to come to God through faith. Joshua set up the temple or the tabernacle where? He set it up in the wilderness, Moses did, and then Joshua set it up in the land where the Gentiles were, in Shiloh. We read it was once set up. The Orthodox Jews to this day assert there is only one place that the temple could possibly be built. It must be built on the Temple Mount, where on Mount Moriah, where Isaac sacrificed Jacob, or was going to sacrifice, excuse me, what am I saying? Where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And um, that's where they say, they call it the cornerstone of the earth. Like that is the central point where God's presence is. And that's why we look towards the, the Western Wall. Because God's presence is here. But what does Stephen do? He says, well, was God with the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt? Yes, he certainly was. His presence was there. The temple, uh, the tabernacle was there in the wilderness. And his tabernacle was also in Shiloh. It was in the land of the Gentiles. And it's also been built by Solomon right there. So it's not about geography. People can worship God in any place. God is there with his people. So it's not just here that it's really special. God's presence is everywhere. And they're like, "Mm." I could see their faces begin to scowl a bit. Because this was the place where everyone came. This is the hub of their ministry. Whether they're in a tent, whether they're in a temple, God was with them in both places. So God's not limited to a geographic location. His presence is not more here than somewhere else where you go as a child of God. So even as Moses, Joshua, Solomon brought fundamental changes to worship, Jesus did as well. And that's what he's getting to. That Jesus has now made a fundamental change in the way we worship God because he has uh, fulfilled the law and given us a new covenant through his blood. And he says, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. If you want to turn to Isaiah 66, we'll just read verses 1, because all he quotes is verse 1, but verse 2, they would have known how it would have continued. So this is pretty cool. If you go to Isaiah 66, I'll just read it from my Bible. It says, Thus says the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. 
from, from the prophets, he begins to point something out to them. He said he's not looking towards a building. He doesn't dwell just in this temple made with hands. He is looking to someone that has a humble and contrite heart. That's the one that God regards. Do you have that humble and contrite heart? It's not because of where you are or because of your role or your calling. But do you have a heart that God's going to look and say, I see you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm just blown away how the Holy Spirit enabled Stephen to rightly divide the Old Testament scripture to confirm the new covenant through the blood of Jesus. They say it's not about worshiping at a temple. It's not about going to a place. It's about having a right heart before God. And we can only have a right heart when we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Contrite. That word, it means to be brokenhearted for sin, deeply affected with grief and sorrow for having offended God, humble, penitent. It's more than saying sorry. It, it's repentance shown in sorrow and brokenness. And it just made me think, well, when's the last time I wept because of my sin? My sin. Not because of a sin or a hurt I've seen in the world, but because I have offended God because of my, my habits and my behavior. Because I have, I have offended him who is holy and righteous and who loves me so. Would there be a heart found among the Sanhedrin that day who would be contrite and respond in a God-honoring way? Acts 7, 51. He continues. So they're not, the, they're not the contrite ones. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed it in with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here is a man preaching who has absolutely nothing to lose. He is just, he's saying, you claim to love God, but you disobey him. You claim to uphold the law, but you're breaking it continually. Their hearts were proud. There was no contrition. There was no humility whatsoever for their sin. And based upon the, law, the words of their own prophets, God would not even look upon them, even in the temple, because their hearts were not right in the sight of God. And led by the Holy Spirit, he calls them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Now, the picture of being stiff-necked, it's, uh, it's not that you slept wrong and, you know, you need a new pillow. It, it is the picture of a calf who is not accustomed to a yoke. And a yoke would be worn um, when you drive a team that will plow the ground or do some sort of work. They'll tra trample the grain or something. Oxen, like horses, must be broken before they work. But oxen are different than horses in that you'll never see one with a, a bit in their mouth. They don't, they're not trained the same way. It's a totally different animal. They are trained to respond to verbal commands. So an ox, before they even put a yoke on, they're halter trained. So they'll have a rope and they're given verbal commands. The guy has a little lash and he'll let go, gee or ha, you know, whoa. And he'll kind of direct it. 
and it starts to learn. And once it's understood and, and it's happy with everything, then they slowly move to wearing a yoke. And, th- and when they put on that yoke the first time, the calf is not particularly keen to have it on. It's going to push against it, push against it, but they just wait, and they're very patient. And you can check out some cool YouTube videos of this actual training and how the, the animal responds. At the beginning, the, the man or lady will lead in front to give the commands. Then they begin to move behind to give the commands. And you see that when the children of Israel are coming out. He's leading them, right? His presence. He's going before them all the time. And then he gives them the oracles. He gives them the tabernacle. He, he tells them how to worship him. And it's like that he's behind them and he's sending prophets and, and ministers to, to guide them and direct them and to chasten them. Say, hey, you're, you're off track. Get back on track. But they would not hear. They would not listen. They were stiff-necked. They were still fighting the yoke. They weren't willing to respond to the commands that God was giving them. And so just like that untrained ox, unfamiliar with a yoke, straining and fighting, trying to break off that yoke, so these rulers always resisted the Holy Spirit. He says, it's been in your past, and it's you too. You're just unfamiliar with him. You don't know him. You don't respond to him. They would not bow or yield to God's direction. He called out to them, but they would not hear. He also said they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. And Matthew Poole, he says, they still had depraved affections which they ought to have put away rather than the foreskin of their flesh. So they took great pride in following the law and in keeping the command to be circumcised, but it was their pride that needed to be cut off and dealt with. They had to deal with that, something inside of them, not something they could boast in, in their flesh. This is not a foreign concept to them because in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses wrote this. He said, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, but be stiff-necked no longer. So this whole concept of being stiff-necked, something throughout their history they'd heard many times by Moses and the prophets. And they, these guys were just the same because their hearts were the same. They hadn't been born again. These men were trained in the knowledge and interpretation of the law, but they did not respond to God's voice. And he's saying, you are just like your fathers who hated Joseph, who rejected Moses. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They persecuted the prophets, and you have become you. Now, he's making it personal, and this is something the Holy Spirit will always do. He always makes it intensely personal. You are the betrayers and the murderers of the just one. You betrayed and murdered the Messiah Moses talked about. You are guilty of that. So, can you imagine how they're going to respond to this? Hmm. Like, I've never, I've never, yeah, I, I guess it's hard to put yourself in that shoe, in those shoes, but you know when someone calls you out on something and you know that it's true, but you don't want it to be true, or the fact that they pointed it out is offensive? I think that's what's going on here. We've all felt the rage, right? Like a mm, a bit of a, it's kind of hard to describe, but I think you know. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. We've all felt that. It said they were cut to the heart. And the word cut to the heart there in the Greek, it's the same word that's translated sawn asunder in Hebrews 11.37. They were just whacked. And they were angry, enraged by it. 
this spiritual lancing inferiority to them. They have, a, and, and you see a great stark contrast to that of Stephen, right? They're angry. Their eyes are narrowed upon him in condemnation and anger. Their rage and malice is, is goaded by their flesh. But it says that Stephen, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he sees the glory of God. His eyes are open to behold something marvelous. It says he, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ, the one condemned as a blasphemer, Stephen can see him and he's standing, he's alive and he's in a place of authority. He's, he's looking down upon him. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, our flesh will often resent and resist. Our flesh will. Is there found in us a contrite heart when God speaks to us? Or do are we filled with vengeance or anger? Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The reaction of the religious leaders, it demonstrates the truth of what Stephen spoke, isn't it? They physically covered their ears, something they had been spiritually doing for a long time. And they rushed at him. The word rushed there or ran at him. It's the same word that's used when the the swine were possessed by demons and ran violently down into the water and drowned. They rushed at him, and they attacked him. And in, according to the law observed in those days, when you stone someone in the, in the Jewish law, you would take them to a height that was about twice the height of a man. Not higher, because that could mutilate. So they would take them up to, to the height, of two, two heights of the person and throw them face first. If they survived that fall, then they would drop a stone upon them. If they survived that, then they would all um, uh, stone that person. It says there that there was a... It, so in the law, it says, let those who are witnessing against him be the first to put their hands upon them, and that's how they fulfilled that. They said, you know, the ones that shove him, they're the ones who say, we know he's guilty. So they took responsibility for that, and then the rest of those uh, stoned the person. And Luke notes that there was a notable man, a young man named Saul, who we will learn to as, as Paul, the Apostle Paul. After being thrown down, Stephen, he doesn't cower, he doesn't cry, he he rose to his knees. And his last words were used to beg forgiveness to his murderers. Very reminiscent of what Jesus said in Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's significant, too, that the prayer of Stephen, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and who is he praying to? He's praying to Jesus, Lord Jesus, he says. This is one of the few scriptures that Jesus is directly addressed in a prayer, and it shows the deity of Christ, and that we can pray to him as well. So the stones are raining down, Stephen prays, it says, verse 60, and when he had said this, 
he fell asleep. And isn't this a lovely way, a very peaceful way, to describe the bloody end, undoubtedly, that Stephen faced on that day? No mercy from his attackers, but he received great mercy from God. Death for Stephen was not the end, because he awoke and folded in the arms of his Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, such escalation in the persecution of the church. Remember, when they first healed the man, there was a a stern warning. The next time they were arrested and beaten, and now we see the first Christian dying in the history of the church. In a world that's hopeless, in the face of death, we as believers, we have eternal hope that death cannot rob us of, because Jesus, even as he rose as the resurrection and the life, we can say, in, as is written by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. These words were written by the man who watched Stephen die. And Stephen didn't get to see the transformation that happened that made Saul of Tarsus become Paul the Apostle. But I believe the word of God that he spoke that day had an an impact in him where he was thinking about it. He may have been one of those who stopped his ears and rushed at him and even put his hand on him to throw him down. However. He was a changed man after that, as we'll see in a few chapters. I believe that the Lord used that as a pivotal moment in Saul's life, and that's why we have record of it here. Could you please turn to Psalm 32, verse 8 through 10? It's the passage that I began with, and it's really significant as God speaks to you and to me. The promise that God gives us, the exhortation he gives us, and the promise at the end. Psalm 32, starting in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. We can't do the work of the Lord unless we're yielded to him. Put away our idols and are filled with the Spirit. And we see that heart, that heart of uh, humility in Stephen. We need the gospel now as much as we ever did because who can change his own heart we need god to change us may this example of wayward hearts and the the fruit of idolatry drive this home how many how many times has god spoken to you by his word and we were like those stiff-necked people we resisted it we resented it we fought against it we were like those untrained brute beasts who when the yoke was placed, just fought against it, would not yield. Let's be those who yield before the Lord and his word. 
Praise the Lord, he's promised to instruct us. When that, when that yoke is laid across the shoulders of an, an ox, um, it doesn't need to figure it out by himself. He couldn't, and he wouldn't be able to use it properly even if he, it was permanently on him. But God's like, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to guide you with my eye. I'll tell you when to turn to the right. I'll tell you when to stay straight. I'll tell you when to stop and to move ahead. And we can trust him for that. He's going to be with us. And he sees our hearts. He knows what we need. God knew the heart of Stephen's listeners, but he still told Stephen to say those things because he was a God who would surround him with mercy. We look at it and we say, whoa, angry people, rocks flying, not cool. But he trusted the Lord and he was surrounded by God's mercy. He fell asleep and woke up in the arms of the Lord. He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. You know those who, who rushed upon him that day? They only added to their sorrow. But Stephen, a heart of forgiveness and love. So I have a final question. Who do you identify with in the message? There's a lot of different people that we talked about. Who would you say, ah, that's kind of like me in my situation. I'm kind of like this, or I'm kind of like that. There's a godly and biblical response to whomever you are. Whether you feel like you're the one who's saying the truth and being attacked for it, whether you're the one who would just rather stop, stop your ears and just lash out, or, uh, you know, the, the ones who are still following the sins of the fathers, or whatever. The Lord knows. But may God's word pierce us each in the way that it's needed. So we might be those who are contrite, repentant, obedient, and bold in glorifying God. The gravity of your sin it does not keep the contrite from the mercy of God. It's the repentant that he looks upon with grace. So it's not that your sin is too great that he can't reach you. It's like, will you be contrite and respond to him in joyful obedience? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you know how to break us. You know how to bring us to a place where we will yield to you. Thank you that you do so in a very gentle and loving way. And that the end of it is life. Life everlasting. Thank you that we have great hope through you and that you are glorious and your ways are higher than ours. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been proud and boastful and we have hated others and we have... Um, just not responded to you with a contrite heart. Thank you, Lord, that you look upon those who have a contrite heart, that we don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice for you to hear our prayers because you have already, uh, Jesus Christ has offered himself up so that we could be born again through the Holy Spirit, that your presence could dwell within us, that we could become the temple of the Holy Spirit and you can speak to each one. Lord, I pray that we would just uh, bow our knees and our hearts before you, that we would not have a stiff neck or ears that refuse to hear, but you would speak to us, Lord, and we would answer. We would be broken, and we would rejoice. Our eyes would be open to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.